0: Welcome to this week's episode of Real Early, the podcast that asks the question, how do films influence an author? My guest this week is J.D. Oliva. He is an author and podcaster from where I grew up in Northern Illinois. Recently, J.D. had a successful Kickstarter campaign for his upcoming novella, Red Sunrise, the story about a samurai in a battle against an evil vampire. Just like the horror and sci-fi films we loved growing up, J.D.'s books offer plenty of the same thrills he found in those movies, with his Books of Jericho series and standalone novel Harvest Moon. You can also hear J.D. every week, along with co-host Mike Gilbert, on Brace for Impact, a podcast about Impact Wrestling, which is part of the Fight Game Media Network. One of the interesting things I've learned since starting this podcast is how much our family influences us. J.D. was very candid in our discussion about just how his family has shaped him as a storyteller, especially how he approaches writing since becoming a father. All that add more on this week's episode... With J.D. Oliva. Uh, J.D., thanks for joining me uh, today on my show.
1: Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. So, um, no problem. So, our friend David Lovell, he does a podcast called How I Got the Wrestling Bug. And I believe you and your uh, your friend, who's your coach, I think, right? Were I, was, guessing I, was on
1: his, tr- I was his coach, actually. His coach.
0: So, you, you were guessing on, talking about wrestling, and, uh, I did a show shortly after that one and it was a really good show. And the, one of the reasons that stuck with me is because you were also from Northern Illinois, like I was. So we had a, a lot in common and this program I'm doing now too, is also inspired by partly by <clears throat> that podcast. So I was like, man, I got to get JD on on my show and talk to him because, you know, you got a lot of interesting experiences that you've dealt with, um, so I thought you would be a, a good guest. So thanks for joining me here today.
1: Well, I appreciate that. I've led a, uh, a rather bizarre life. So uh, I appreciate any opportunity I get to talk about um, how uh, erratic <laughs> my time usually is. But yeah, we're from not too terribly far. You're from Deerfield, right? Yeah. I grew I'm up in Cabana. Home of Cole. I played against Cole Cabana my senior year of high school. I went to Streamwood. He went to Deerfield. And we played against each other first game of our senior year of high school, way back in the year of our little, the year 1997. So that's my claim to fame as far as pro wrestling goes. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, uh, I was already in college by that point. He, he was a little bit younger than me. So,
1: and I didn't play football either. So we never would have. I was, uh, I was a lot smaller than him or shorter anyway. So yeah, we, uh, we had that one little experience with each other, which is kind of cool. I can say, hey, by the way, I, I enjoy that little uh, factoid about it. And I got, I'm a big Cole Cabana fan, so it's cool to say that.
0: Yeah, I did a, a whole episode with my best friend, uh, Phil Wills, on wrestling. Well, this is normally movies, but I talked about wrestling because, like, for me, wrestling was very similar to how I got into movies because there was the VHS tapes I used to rent back in the day. Is that one of the ways that you got into wrestling through VHS tapes? So
1: um, I was one of those kids. I, movies was my first love. I wanted to be involved in movies since I was in the second grade. And I fell into pro wrestling fandom. I was about 12. I was a little bit older than most kids. And I found it because some kid moved into the neighborhood. And there was experiences running. Like, I remember watching Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. I remember it being on the TV a couple of times. And there's a couple angles that stick out to me. But I didn't, like become a fan fan until 92. So I was like 12 at the time. And um, what really grew my fandom was VHS and uh, it was going to Blockbuster and renting what they had there. And then when I was done with that Blockbuster, I went to another Blockbuster and I went back to the mom and pop video shop down the street. I just went everywhere I could to get my hands on VHS cassettes. I didn't know what tape trading was. I didn't know tape trading was a thing until I was in my thirties. So I I was not a part of that whole scene. I literally, before the show started, I just tweeted because Tony Khan announced that Ricky Steamboat is going to be on Dynamite tomorrow night. The very first day is going to be the timekeeper in the Dragon match, which is just perfect. Um, The first video I ever did on my own was I did a Ricky Steamboat highlight video and I put it together by just, um, I make, uh, because I had two VHSs and I knew how to hook them together and I dubbed matches of his that I had had from like the other VHS that I had or from episodes of WSW Saturday Night. I remember T- TBS ran this long uh, like uh marathon of wrestling matches and I-, I edited them together off the two VCRs and then I sh- I propped up my camcorder and I shot the TV while I played the theme song from Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. That was the very first little music video project I ever did. I just it's something I wanted to do on my own. So yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I literally just tweeted that out. VHS is was a huge part of my life, man. My first job was at Blockbuster.
0: So, when you were growing up, then, was your family, did they have like VHS and cable and whatnot? Like, what was the home life like with that?
1: Um, okay. Like, when we, st- I remember having cable when I was very young and then we lost it. And then I remember getting it again when I was still pretty young. I think we were about eight when I had it the second time seven or eight. And I remember we had it when I was like three or four and then we didn't have it for a while. And then we had cable. And I remember my uncle coming to stay with us. Cause he was, um, I'll be frank. He was a recovering addict and uh, he was living with us when he was going through rehab. And I was, I was about seven, six or seven. And um, I remember he brought his VHS player. And it was the first time I had seen a video recorder. And I remember this specifically, the very first movie that I ever saw on video was, uh, the Karate Kid. And it was the first time I had watched it, and it's to this day one of my favorite movies. But I, I vividly remember like him having this magic machine that you put this thing into this machine, and all of a sudden you could watch a movie on TV. And it it blew my probably changed the course of my life. Now that I'm saying this story out loud, like it just it, it absolutely blew my mind. So my parents, when they left, my dad went out and did what any smart parent would, and bought himself a Beta. A so beta machine, wow. We had he was a bet- really thinking ahead, wasn't he? he? No, he was thinking behind. It was cheaper. Yeah. My dad, notoriously cheap. So we had a Betamax in like 1988. Um, and I think we had a, uh, my parents had a Betamax until 1989. And they had to upgrade to VHS because it was the only way we could own Batman. Because they did not release Batman on Betamax.
0: So that's an interesting. I didn't realize that Betamax actually lasted into the late 80s. I thought they had just gotten destroyed beforehand.
1: No, here's the weird thing about because this is my background and I can get this later but my background in television when I was working for Live Nation Motorsports in the mid 2000s, they were still using Beta Cam as their source of video and Beta Cam and Beta Max were essentially the same thing. Like Beta was a far superior brand to VHS. It was more expensive and Sony had the rights to it. So like whereas um, VHS could be done by anybody. You had to pay a little bit to Sony and the Tapes were smaller and it was just like this thing like quality-wise, I still put it this way. I still have that Betamax. That Betamax is in my house right now. And if I had if I have an older TV, I could hook it up. Like I remember I hooked it up before my wife and I bought this house. I found it and I hooked it up to this old TV. And I still could play my old Betamax tapes. And the I was shocked at the quality and how good it was for stuff that I taped off a TV in like the late 80s. Like beta beta kind of ruled actually. It just it wasn't the right. It wasn't a cheap enough product, and you couldn't get those like VHS. You could dub like uh, two, four, six hour tapes. You could not do that on a beta. So it lost the consumer grade war. But for the professionals, we were using beta up till about two thousand seven. Like I remember making the adjustment when I was editing TV commercials. We were. I was on that that. I don't want to say the front line, but it was like we. I remember making the adjustment from uh, beta cam into HD into high def. So I mean, it was one right after the other, like the vast majority of television that people watched growing up was shot on beta and i don't know if people realize that but beta was like the cousin the cousin format beta cam but it's essentially the same thing yeah you know
0: it's funny when you mentioned that i was just remembering when i was interning with this show called adrenaline tv uh we did a lot of i was just you know looking at different beta tapes just to you know Get like good footage and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I completely forgot about how that was just basically like the next, the last gen, I guess, basically at this point. But it made sense because it definitely looked better.
1: It did. It was the last, it was. In some ways, because they, they stopped making beta cam tapes after they stopped making VHS. So in a way, Sony did win out, it just didn't win the consumer grade war. Like it won the professional grade, because nobody ever shot VHS is a garbage medium. Like if you listen to any podcast that plays like stuff that, that comes off of, of VHSs, it sounds like crap. You look at stuff like uploaded to YouTube off VHS, it looks terrible. Like VHS was is what it was. It was a garbage format, but it was super cheap, which is why. We were able to fall in love with these products because they were they were so cheap to get a hold of. So
0: you have a bunch of your old Betamax that you use to record off of television.
1: What what do you have on there? Like what are some of the stuff Man. that you would record? I tell you, the one I remember specifically was uh I'm a big comic book fan. And um when Batman came out and Batman 89, like that was like a seminal event in, in like our youth. And I remember 2020 had this special that they ran the Friday before Batman came out. And it was this little interview with Bob Kane, this quick little news, like a news magazine piece on Batman. I must've watched that every day for the better part of a year. And I mean, every day, like throughout that summer of 89, I watched it every day, multiple times a day that next year in fourth grade, I would come home. I would watch it again. Like I just, I watched it until we, I watched the thing until we put away the beta cam like that was the one thing I remember I remember we owned the Franklin Jella Dracula on beta I remember we owned I think war games on beta like it was it got harder like it got hard to rent movies on beta which is why my parents also made that adjustment but we had a handful of, um, of movies like that but I remember the one thing I remember watching over and over again was this stupid episode of 2020
0: yeah so um back in 89 Batman was obviously a huge thing for everybody and I I was looking up because I couldn't quite remember if it was PG 13 just to re- make sure my story is straight and it is PG 13. So I was 12 when it came out and when we went to go to the theater and I said, Oh, I'm 13 thinking they wouldn't let me in with my friends. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's gotta be 13 to go in. Well, all that did was just, I ended up having to pay more to go see it. So I didn't have like the kids rate. Right? So, you know, if it's a PG 13 movie, Don't, don't say that you're 13 when you're 12. That's what I remember most about going to see Batman beyond it being an awesome
1: movie that my dad took, my dad never took us to the movies, but I remember coming home from baseball practice and my dad got my brother and I, we went to the mall to watch that because, you know, back when the movie theaters were at the mall, I remember the line was like stretched around. It was, that's like I so said, that's one of those moments right aside. That's another one. I'm like, man, I'm going to be in movies. I want to make movies someday. Like I remember just my little heart just pounding out of its chest as that Danny Elfman score kicks in. And I just, I'll never forget it. Like I'll never forget that level of excitement. It was, it was awesome. Like I still, you know, 42 years old now and I've never felt that way about anything. It's just that the innocence of youth combined with, you know, just the excitement of the unknown. Like, I've never been more... I was the perfect age at the perfect time. I was never more excited for anything, you know, and it was such an awesome feeling. So, when you saw
0: that, you're like, man, I want to do movies. Did you say, hey, dad, I need a camera.
1: Did you have a camera as a kid? Uh, So, you made like your own films and stuff? No, we were poor. So, I didn't have much of... Like, we had like cable and we had like VHS machine, but I like... We didn't go on vacations or anything like that. Like entertainment was really important to my mom. You know, um, we had one car, three kids, my grandpa lived with us. Like, we didn't have a lot growing up until I got into high school. My dad started his own business. So I didn't have a camera. And this is kind of what wound up pushing me down the road that I went down was that um I just wrote. Like I had these ideas for movies and I would write them down and I would have like the neighborhood kids kind of act them out. A little bit. So I would like direct, like essentially directing plays. But at the time I called the movies and I would just write them down and write them down. And that became what I really fell in love with was the process of like writing them. And then when I got, when we got older, we got some more stuff. So like when I got the whole two VCRs, like I remember my parents, my 12th birthday, they got me my own VCR because back then they were like a hundred bucks. So it wasn't a whole lot for, you know, a gift. So then I learned how to wire them together. I didn't get a camera until I was probably 15 or 16. So shooting video didn't become second nature to me until I became a professional, honestly. Like I never was, I was never a kid who played with the video camera. Like we would do videos in high school. Like my parents did get a camera in high school, but I wasn't, they didn't let me play with it. You know, I could use it for school projects, but they were like, no, you're going to break this thing. And they are right. I probably would have destroyed it. But like, you know, I just, uh, no, for the most part for me, it was all writing. Yeah. One of the things I was
0: not good at was uh, shooting camera, um, as much as I loved movies and I, when I was in college, I was a film minor and everything. I did some video editing classes and whatnot. I was not good at it. That's probably why I just never went beyond just interning after college. Um, but, uh, what was, what was the biggest lesson that you learned, uh, growing up that helped you become a better storyteller?
1: My grandpa was a writer. Um, but he was like a failed writer. So he would like write these story, like write these books. And he was constantly trying to find a publisher and he could never really do it. And then he tried his hand at nonfiction and he could never, never find a publisher. And I really didn't understand why. And, um, I remember I wrote a story and my grandpa, and that was probably like 12. Like I was young and my grandpa just tore it to shreds. Like, I don't even remember what it's about, but it was like, this is bad. This is this blah, 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 blah. And it, it hurts. And um, cause again, I was a kid and like, I remember my mom came up to me and told me like, well, the reason your grandpa doesn't sell his stories is because he's not a very good writer and his nonfiction books are literally stolen from other books that he reads and he does not cite his sources. So that was like, it was a harsh lesson for me to learn that, that, you know, that there is rejection. And and I learned very young that um people kind of lash out. Like, I think he thought he was giving me tough love and kind of preparing me for like people being hard on your work when you get older. Uh, so I don't know. I don't, I mean, like he was also kind of a bitter old man who never really did anything. And like, I've never, I've never had a chance to actually read his work. He died when I was 14 and like our family's weird. So I never, I never had a chance to like, Actually, read any of my grandpa's manuscripts to to see what he was like as a writer. If he was just cliched and bad and didn't know what he was doing, or or what. So that's kind of the one thing that's always stuck out to me is like I did not have like my mom and dad were were good about fostering my interests. I got like I said i to be a movie filmmaker and they'd be like yeah man let's do that or you know um or my my parents got me a my word processor like this cheap word brother P touch word processor when I was. Probably twelve or thirteen. And you know, they were they were good about that. But I remember my grandpa, who I respected a ton, just thrashed me. So the lesson I really learned from that was, you know, be prepared for people to be hard on your stuff. Because then they can be. And like, you know, as a as a guy who's been multiple times published and has a lot of books out now, it's uh, I don't know, a little chip on my shoulder, but like I did what you did. I did what you couldn't do, old man. You know, I don't know if it's a good or not, but I'm super competitive. (laughs) So I guess that's a downside. Yeah. Well, you know, that's,
0: um, that is just something that uh, helped you kind of get that push and, you know, everybody takes things a little bit differently. And I I think that is shows a lot about your character that you didn't give up. And I think that's a lesson that a lot of people can learn. I think
1: um, I'm a jock, you know, um, I've never been super successful, but like, I'm really good at not giving up. Like, it's just kind of, I don't know what it is. Like, um, I was in eye therapy as a kid. So like, I just, uh, I'm blind in one eye. So like, I had to learn how to walk in a straight line, had to learn how to like, you know, do things that that some people kind of take for granted, I guess, like ride a bike and things like that. So it kind of gave me this attitude where uh, people say, you can't do that. And I was like, I can do that. Like it turned, like it turned me into division one athlete, you know, and I, I played sports in college and you know, I'm a pretty high level wrestling coach now. And I wanted to, you know, as a filmmaker and, you know, TV and now I'm a novelist, like part, a lot of me is kind of like, I'm going to do this thing. You know, it's part of, I guess that's part of my problem is I get so like, I want to do a little bit of everything just to, just to prove that I can, as opposed to trying to be like, you know, I'm going to do, just do this one thing. You know, that might be a, that might be a bad thing actually. And I think about it. Cause you know, I've never really been totally focused on being just good at one thing. I mean, kind of turned to a jack-of-all-trades master of none but i mean I, I don't have any regrets about it well
0: you just had a kickstarter recently um yeah. where you, you you've been successful before mm-hmm. what what do you think it is about you as a writer that has allowed people to want to follow you and do your kickstarters like what what is your secret to to that
1: i'm personable to be honest with you. I think that, uh, I think I could, I draw a lot of people in because I do things like this. Like I, I like to guest on podcasts. I host two of my own about vastly different subjects. Again, me, Scott, Sk- Johnny scatterbrain. I do a wrestling podcast and I do a, a geek culture podcast We talk about, you know, comics and comic book movies and stuff like that. And then I just, I put myself out there. Like I'm on Twitter, you know, and I'm, i talk about things and I just kind of, I've had a lot of people say, Hey, I checked out your stuff because I, I think you're interesting or I like you as a person. So I think that um, marketing is expensive, right? It's cost a lot of money to kind of fail a little bit. And like um, that's always that that probably holds me back professionally is I've never just fully invested into marketing my stuff. I I try to go for the grassroots thing and like we've had six, 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 six successful kickstarters. And, um, you know, they've all been for a little bit different stuff and I've never blown the doors off anything, but I've made my goals. I make money. Like, I think I made 350% off, uh, off of what our ask for the last novella, like a 150 page book. Like I turned that around to like, it's a real short book. We did that quick and uh, you know, it went okay. But I think for the most part, I think a lot of people, you know, I'm drawn in just by, by me. Like, I think that the, my best selling point is I think I'm an interesting person with some cool thoughts on topics and then people are willing to check out my stuff usually and then you know and then once you get in the door it's it's different because like I said I have a very I'm a very specific kind of writer like I have a specific set of tastes that I that I'm into and if you like it you're probably gonna like my stuff if it's not your thing you're not gonna like my stuff my wife hates my writing she does not like me you know, I'm a horror thriller writer for the most part i dabble in urban fantasy but I'm pretty horror thriller guy and she just does not like my stuff and that's okay i don't ask her to read it that's cool like i said if like i said i've had people i've had a lot of people i've met on twitter's like man i'd like to read your stuff but i just i just can't do the monsters and i'm like i get it it's totally it's totally cool man like i can't i can't be a guy who's just chasing trends as a writer i gotta write the stuff that's interesting to me and the stuff that interests me is kind of weird so
0: how did you get interested in monsters then? I mean, you said you were a jock, but you also like comic books. Like I'm weird, man. How, did, um, what did what did your friends think about you and comic weird. books? Were you all comic book fans or no? Just, no you?
1: just me. I would get, I get super passionate about things. Like when I talk about things, I get really excited about them. So I was really good at getting my friends to try things. Like when we were kids, I got really into comics. And for about like six months, my circle of friends read comics and then they all, and there was also during the boom, like when comics were super popular everywhere, I got my friends into comics and then they kind of faltered off, but I stayed with it. And then like in the late nineties, I was super into wrestling. So when it got cool, all my friends were into wrestling. And about two years later, they were all gone. And I was still <laughs> into wrestling. Like, so I just, I'm, I, I get, I get super passionate. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, blah, blah, blah. Let's, let's talk about this. And then they kind of follow along and they, they, they falter. Um, when I was a kid, like, I loved superheroes, right? Loved superheroes. And that kind of led me into reading comics. I can start off with Spider-Man and his amazing friends, you know, Batman, the Adam West show. Those were on TV. And that's the stuff that I I clicked with. And then when I got into uh, elementary school, I remember they had these books, right? And they were these little orange covered books. And they were all about various movie monsters. Like they had a book about werewolves. They had a book about vampires. They had a book about Godzilla. They had a book about King Kong there's like 10, it was a 10 volume series and I read them all and I got super into it. And then they used to have, there was a show on TBS called super scary Saturdays. It was on Saturday mornings and it was hosted by grandpa Al from the Munsters. And he would show, it was like a, like a Sven-Gooly type of deal. Like and when we were kids, Svengulli was off of TV in, in Chicago. So that was not part of like my childhood, but like this was it. Like this is where I watched hammer Uh, hammer horror films this is where i first discovered godzilla where i first saw like night of the lepas and all these things and i developed this love of monsters like i love because it's all the same stuff like if you're into comics if you're into monsters if you're into like horror like it's all kind of like it occupies the same space in the brain so that's really where my my love for those things like supernatural stuff really comes from is that you know i dig superheroes and i think monsters are awesome and like so when Mystery Science Theater got popular, like I was in like immediately, like my first time I saw it, I'm like, this is it. This is my jam, you know, so it's just it just it hits that perfect cornerstone in my brain. And that just that's so when it came time to create things, you know, my brain went right to those places like, you know, my book was a werewolf book that I've been planning to write since I was 11. You know, <laughs> like that's just that's just the way I am. I love I love that stuff
0: when you were getting into movies on on television and whatnot, did you watch this stuff like by yourself or did you like your siblings? Were they into it? You know, watch them together or, or was this just like for me when I was a kid growing up, I got into horror mostly on my own by just, we had cable and we had HBO and I would just watch stuff. And I think my sister wanted to go see Jaws three once. And I was like, I want to go. And they said, no, cause it's rated R and you're like six. But like, I was like, man, I got to, I want to know what the stuff is, and they let me. They let me rent Jaws, was one of those movies that seminal movies that changed my life. And but basically, I was just watching all this stuff on my own. Was that similar to you, or did somebody give you that love also?
1: So a little bit, like when I was, I remember my grand when my when my grandma passed away, I remember my cousin was watching, was sitting me, and for some, I was three, and for some reason, she thought it was a really good idea to watch Halloween three. And so I remember watching Halloween three as a young boy, and I just had this this image in my head of the of the pump the mask scene where the bugs come on eat the kid's face, and that terrified me beyond all recognition. And my mom was infuriated with her; it was a big thing. But it also created this like forbidden fruit with horror movies. And when we went to the video store, and this is like probably first grade, second grade, I would stare at the horror movie section. I was too afraid to go in there. I was too afraid to go into the section to look at it. But I would look, I would just get a peek and I would look at the boxes from like a distance, right? And I would make up the movies in my head. Like this movie, like 976 Evil, that must be about this. And I would like the the posters and the, video, the box would like implant these images in me. And so I would like try to figure out what it was, but I was way too scared to walk in. And then um, my parents sent me to vacation Bible school every summer and we had free art time. And I remember this because we had to have a talk about it. my parents had to be brought in for a talk. We got to draw anything we wanted. So I drew this poster and I called it night of the living dead three. And Optimus prime was fighting zombies. That sounds amazing. It doesn't it. They want to see that movie. <laughs> I d- I, at, at eight, I should have been given a movie deal. Um, no, I I drew this and the, the the ministers brought my parents in for a conversation. They did not think that zombies versus transformers was appropriate for vacation Bible school. My mom pointed, I was like, well, the transformers are winning. So it's not like he's evil. So at that point, my mom said, okay, if you are interested in this monster stuff. We are going to start slow. So she rented Dracula, like the Bela Lugosi one for me. She rented uh, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein. So we started there. And my mom was a big film nut growing up. So she was. She thought it was important that we had like this foundation in like the classics. So I watched, and this was around the same time that I discovered Super Scary Saturdays. Like I'm watching all this stuff like the same time. So. Like she was, fest- she was like fostering my love of of these horror films while I was watching stuff on my own. And my kid brother would kind of tag along with me. He was never as into it as me, but because I was into it, and I was like, "We got to do this. Come watch this with me." Like he would watch sometimes, but for the most part, it was me and my mom. We we had this bond over movies, and that was really cool. And so, but when I got in old enough to watch like the the real horror stuff, she was out. She's like, "I got no interest in in Nightmare on Elm Street and." and this kind of stuff, but she like, she, man, she had, she loved talking about like, like Bella Lugosi or Lon Chaney and all the, that kind of stuff. So that really kind of, like I said, she, she really fostered my love for, for, um, older older film really like that's why i dug german expressionism because i've been really watching the stuff since i was eight you know i mean it's like i understood shadows and like oh that's why this is scary you know when she talked about like filmmaking stuff with me because that was that was her interest so yeah man my mom really kind of threw gas on that fire (laughs) to really get me into movies yeah that's
0: not quite similar with my mom
1: but she was
0: not one to Tell me I couldn't watch something. She wasn't really like a movie person, but she like record. One of my biggest regrets is we got rid of all of the stuff we would record. So there'd be like the six hour tapes with three movies on it. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had them to find out like what my mom would record what she was into. And I remember some of the stuff, but what was cool about my mom was when I was like 13 or 14, whatever it was, she went to go see the last Friday the 13th. Well, not the last one, but, you know, Jason goes to Jason
1: hell. Not, oh, Jason goes to hell. Okay. Yeah.
0: We She let me took me to that while we were in Minnesota at the Mall of America uh, when we had to pick up a car because there was an accident. It's a whole long story. But, like, she actually would, like, do stuff like that. We – there was one time at the we – or at the house, and we had a TV in our, in our family room, and we did a double feature, the weirdest – fucking double feature with my mom of Miracle Mile and Slumber Party Massacre 2. <laughs> oh, like, how and then and then after that we watched Jake and the Fat Man. And somehow my mom was cool just like doing whatever she was doing at the time probably like reading something or whatever and it was just like I really appreciate I always like to talk about my parents cuz while they weren't necessarily like movie buffs themselves they didn't discourage me from watching this stuff which I appreciate You know, I mean, they did the thing where they let me rent R-rated movies without them being around. They gave the permission by the video store and stuff. So I probably saw some things I probably shouldn't have at the time. But you know, those things really made it like important for me. So my question then to you, because I love horror movies, like talking horror movies. What was the your favorite horror movie when you were a kid? What
1: was the one that you're like, this is my favorite? It's so weird, like. I don't know if I can say what my favorite movie was. Like, cause I just like watching it. Like, I probably, if you told me, you probably could, if you asked me that as a kid, I probably would give you a different answer every week. Nothing, nothing horror wise like grabbed me growing up. And I was like, man, this is my movie. This is my jam. Like, I just liked imbibing it all. If I had to pick a movie that really kind of encompassed my brain as a kid, it's probably Monster Squad. Cause that was that's me. Like I I watched that movie with my son mm, over the summer because he wanted to. He I, I told him about it and we watched it together. And I was like no wonder I like this movie. This kid is me. Like this is exactly what I was as a kid. This is exactly what I would have loved to do. Being this this little kid fighting against these classic monsters. Like when I got older, I got super into like and again I I kind of fell away from like, the slasher stuff because I kind of find that boring like i don't like the, the whole the final girl trope that's never done anything for me like i dug the 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 you know nightmare on elm street and those sort of things a little bit because of the cult of personality around the characters right but when i got like in high school like i think my favorite horror movie at that point was probably from Dust till dawn right And that came out when i was in high school and that's still a movie that i just i love i love like these i love gritty gnarly vampires and like i really dug the event horizon when i got a little bit older like those are the things that that i really like i like stuff that's a little bit offbeat like i said i don't i i still to this day i'm not into slasher type stuff scream didn't do much for me even like that's really not my thing like anything supernatural really kind of grabs me like now if you ask me what's what's your favorite homie the answer is the thing like that's everything that that you know i like about Horror, right? It's not just, it's not just like the kill. It's not just the gore. It's it's the idea of suspense. Like, and what I really like is the idea of thriller. Like the idea of building these characters. Like I'm a, like when I, we talk about writing, like I get deep into like it's all about character over plot and blah 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 blah. But like I love the idea of this high concept story, and then you get these characters that have to figure things out. Like in my mind, it doesn't it doesn't get better than The Thing or Alien. Like Alien. The thing probably owes a lot to Alien, but those are the kind of movies that, like, man, that's that's it for me. If I want to watch, like, a horror movie, that's that's what I kind of gravitate to.
0: Yeah, so it's funny. I My favorite genre of horror is actually slasher, but my all-time favorite movie is The Thing. And that was one I actually saw for the first time in college, even though I was Same. a huge John Carpenter fan. Same. And uh, I remember so the scene when he's doing the defibrillator and i was like in college i was like i watched this i was watching this by myself for some reason and i ran out the room like guys come here you gotta see this and like half the people are like whatever and then the other half was like that's fucking cool because it is fucking cool And those other people didn't think it was cool or or dorks but uh (laughs) it was like yeah and i've
1: seen that movie on the big screen now like seven times it's just the best. Well, it's a funny you say because I saw growing up, I saw Halloween a ton. I saw Big Trouble in Little China religiously growing up. Like I love that movie. It's art. I saw They Live a Bunch. Like so much of Carpenter's stuff I grew up with. But the thing was like when we were young, it was considered a failure, right? It was one of the most maligned horror movies that ever came out in the 80s. It's considered a drastic failure, critical failure in 82. Like it's a movie that doesn't start getting flowers until we're in college like when we're like in their 20s like in the early 2000s is when people started looking back on the thing and be like hey this movie rules it just it was i think it was too early like like one of the worst things that could happen to a piece of art is it's ahead of its time and the thing is a movie that's ahead of its time like it doesn't play well with what else is going on in both horror and sci-fi in 1982 but you look back on it now with a you know 40-year-old eyes and you're like this is fantastic and it's aged phenomenally like most movies from that era have not this but that movie there's a timeless quality to it like Citizen Kane like a, it's a wonderful life where these are these epic pieces of filmmaking that failed when they were released but it isn't until another generation can look back on it and really see man they were really onto something like it, 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 the Zeitgeist just hits a little too light and it's Carpenter because he had so much such a great uh, filmography underneath him that you know it didn't really it didn't do any damage to his career really because he was able to do whatever he wanted throughout his whole career but I mean the thing I, I don't think it's an argument I think it's his masterpiece like I think a lot of people would say Halloween and stuff like that but man I think the thing is just far beyond like, as a film like just as, as having something to say as a filmmaker and, and speaking in terms of like special effects and just as like an overall piece of art it just it just doesn't get better than that. You know, it's wild too.
0: About the thing is a couple of things. One, it came out the same weekend as Blade Runner, which also was ahead of its time and very similar, bombed. And The movie of that year was ET. ET e. in theaters now, mm-hmm. and at the, my local AMC, I saw The Thing this year also. So, in this year of 2022, I saw The Thing. And I could see ET if I wanted to. Is that like that blows my mind that like you would have thought in 82 like everyone's gonna see ET and no one's gonna think about the thing, but now they're like still playing theaters now. Like it's kind of crazy.
1: Good art does that. Like I I didn't realize ET was gonna come back in theaters. I showed Andy, my my little boy, we watched ET this summer because now we're doing this thing now on the weekends. We have movie night because that's what we had growing up. My mom, and dad would rent, go to Blockbuster or whatever, rent a video on Friday night, and we would get pizza and we would watch it. That was family tradition. I did it till, till I got too cool for school and high school, and I regret that. But now I'm doing that with my little guy, and we watched ET, and by the end of the movie, we're both in tears, sobbing tears, because I, well, I forgot how much I love this movie. Like It's great. 82 is an underrated year for, for movies, to be honest with you, because that's also, you know, that's Spielberg's making, for sure, Spielberg is also producing Poltergeist at the same time. Like, they're shot in the same sets in some cases. So, I mean, like, and that's, like, I told him, oh, I'm going to show him Poltergeist. And she's, like, over my dead body. He's six. So, I'm, like, yeah, you're right. I should hold off on Poltergeist. But that's a great movie. Like, you look back, 82, 84 gets a lot of credit for being this big year of pop culture. Like, so much is going on in 1984. But 82 is a really good one, too. There's such such an interesting slate of films coming out that year. And, again, E.T., like, from the box office perspective, swallows them whole but you look back on it, there was a lot of good stuff that year. A lot.
0: Did you know, actually, you don't know this, but the first movie I ever saw in the theater was E.T. Um, And I re- I think that one scene when he first runs into him with the flashlight, that seems like really scary, right? It, and it
1: scared my kid, yeah.
0: That's like the first scary thing I saw and that probably put an implant to my brain a little bit. And then you talk about six being too young for poltergeist that was the age that i saw poltergeist or around that age
1: i probably did too yeah and I in, think about it.
0: my my i've told this story before but basically my sister tricked me into seeing the dude rip off his face oh you know and i was like hey thanks but like you know all that stuff is like you know makes, <laughs> makes me the the guy i am today obviously but same. I, th- I think you're i think when you do show your your son poltergeist he's probably gonna be scared and also thrilled by that movie. I think he'll like it when he gets to it.
1: And that's what—that's what's cool about that. And, that. and again, that's what I like about horror and supernatural horror in specific. Because, like, I remember watching that movie. I can't remember how old it was when I saw it. Maybe I was older than I thought, or younger than I thought I was. But I remember, like, years before Pennywise, years before like the Joker became like a, a, a pop culture figure. That movie had the most terrifying clown. Ever like that. There was parts of the movie I did not remember, but I remember that kid and the clown under the bed. Sweet Jesus. That terrified me. And again, I'm not ready. She's right. I'm not ready to have my son not be able to sleep in his room for months at a time when he gets a little bit older because poltergeist is like you said. It, it's it, Toby it's it's the perfect marriage of Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg because it is it's thrilling and utterly terrifying at the same time and it walks this razor's edge damn near perfect. We're giving you this like because a lot of times in horror like a lot of like lesser filmmakers you'll get these characters that don't matter in horror they're just there to die. But in poltergeist, you get this family that you can really sink your teeth into and care about. They're very tangible. They're very familiar, right? So it makes this haunting and these horrific things, you feel them so much more. And I guess boy, in retrospect, that's a big influence on on the way I liked or write, like the way I think that I write. It's you know very Stephen King in a lot of ways is you have these you have these um monstrous stakes but they're put on these like very familiar very relatable people and i think that's a big mistake that a lot of filmmakers and writers will make when it when they're doing horror is they get so in love with their demons or their monsters or their setting that they ign- that they ignore the most important thing about any kind of storytelling and that's a character and if we don't have at least a one character that we can empathize with and relate to and feel for and, and sympathize with that you don't have much because your story is predicated on how how good your characters are so you can have these great moments but without like a, a tangible character they're just moments they're not connected by anything so yeah that's um uh, sorry i fell into my writer diatribe
0: yeah actually, i actually do want to want to ask you because um i haven't had a chance to read it yet but i want you to ask you a question if you could sure talk to me a little bit about writing your werewolf book and what lessons you got from growing up with us movies and whatnot that helped you inform you write that book because you were just talking about how family was important and whatnot i'm just kind of curious what you used to write that
1: book that's a very personal book for me actually um that was going to be my first big movie. I made a movie right out of college about I was a college wrestler. So my first movie was a super low budget indie about college wrestling. And I made it. And um, the plan was I was going to make this werewolf movie. And then I made a short film in New Orleans with John Wesley ship as the, the lead. It's this little gothic horror movie. And I came out of that being like, God, I hate movies. Like I spent my whole life wanting to be a filmmaker and I got there and I did it. I was on a real set working with SAG, like dealing with the SAG unions, and I'm doing all the stuff that I've been dreaming of doing my whole life. And I'm I sat in this apartment that we rented in New Orleans being like, I I hate this. I absolutely hate this. What do I do now? Because it's like you work for something your whole life and you get there and you find that you don't you don't like it. And it was very scary for me. So I had this story. I had this script that I had written that I was planning on making for years. And then I had to kind of go back and figure it out when I was like, I had to kind of retrace it. And I looked at the story again. And it's a story about uh, a cop who's investigating a serial killer who turns into a werewolf. Right and that's that's not like the the cop is the werewolf. The cop is the serial killer. That is a turn in the in the book, but it's not like the book doesn't predicate on that. I'm basically telling you from from day one, and that was that was the story, the short story that I wrote in the fifth grade. Like I wanted to, this was my story. Like um, it was always going to be about a werewolf. I was always going to be about a cop who turns into a werewolf who's going to kill his son, and that was the idea I came up with as a kid. And it's a nice story that I. I grew up with, right? Like, and I would rewrite it constantly as I was growing up when I was a kid. Like, and I mean a kid up till I'm 25, I very much related to the son character in the story because my dad is an alcoholic and um, it was hard growing up with him. You know, I'm, I live I'm very, very super, you know, straight edge, straight laced because of the problems that we have with my dad. And that was, I didn't realize this until I was 30 and i rewrote this thing as a novel that this was my way of dealing with my dad right and my i was disturbed when i got to the point it's like my way of dealing with my dad was i was going to kill him like i mean like it was really like this this like moment of realization like wow this is harsh like i just like i had this like, again like you don't know what you're writing sometimes because you're you're exercising your own demons pardon the pun and then i re i re-examined it and um when I actually did write the final book, I started working out when I was 36 It was the year that my son was born. So I attacked it. I got to attack it. I had an opportunity to change my perspective and not just writing about it from a slighted son perspective, but from a father, because now I'm a dad and I've got this little guy and now my concern is, well, how do I not screw this kid up? So this really gave me an opportunity to re-examine it and rethink it in a lot of ways so this is really became instead of the story about a son trying to deal with his dad it becomes a story about a dad trying to not destroy his own son and trying to figure his way around that and doing it with a werewolf gives you a super sweet metaphor to to play with that you know and um yeah so that was against and i i had i'm glad i never got a chance to make that movie or that comic book or or when i was young because i would not have figured out what the story was supposed to be and that book is um it's the linchpin in my universe like i have 10 books out they all are tangentially connected to that story which is cool cuz i've gotten to the the kid character who's now in his early 20s and you know i i've revisited him in different books you know and it's been fun to see what's happened to him and it's been fun to see what what those characters can keep doing you know but in in my mind it's this uh and for me it's this perfect little done in one story it's not a perfect book but i mean like for me the journey of of conceiving this thing as a child to like growing up really that book that book represents me growing up and I'm, i love it with all my heart and it's you know it's flawed it's a book but i mean it's uh it's special for me
0: yeah that's interesting too because when you were talking about how you shifted uh your feelings toward it it reminded me a lot of steven Spielberg with uh third encounters third encounters of the close kind where at the end of that the the dad just leaves leaves his kids right and and Mm -hmm. i think he's talked about it before or whatnot and i if he were to make that movie again i don't know if that ending happens the way it does and it's kind of interesting how Events, huge events like that, changes your
1: perspective. That's a great. I do. Have, I have heard him talk about that, and he has said that if he had written that, or if he had created that movie older, there's no way he gets on the the UFO because he's leaving his family and will never come back. And he's like, no, Dad would do that. And he's right. No, no parent would. well I maybe mean not No, but the vast majority of parents would not willingly leave their kids with the possibility of never returning. But it makes for a good. But again, all art. All art is a reflection of who the artist is in the moment, right? And we're never the same person. Right. And like those those drafts of, of Harvest Moon back when they were called Bloodshot. It's good that it has a different title, actually, because it's a different story to me. Like those represented who I was in my twenties. This book that's finished one, the one that I put out in 2019, is me at you know in my 30s. In a different stage of my life. And if I probably, if I wrote that book again in five years, it'd probably be different too. But that's like I said, like, like reading King, I'm a big King fan. And like everything that he does is a reflection of the person he was at that particular time, which I think is what's makes for good art. You know, you want to, you want to have that snapshot of where your brain was in that, in that era. And, and art does a great job of capturing it.
0: Yeah. And, uh, what, are, what, what is, um, some of the other books that our listeners should uh, look out for too. Um, uh, um,
1: the books, the number one book is Harvest Moon. That's my Werewolf book. I wrote a book called Hawk Hollow. Um, that was actually the first one that came out. That's like a Halloween story. It's about a, a group of kids that are stuck in a commercial haunted house with uh where they don't know if the if the people are uh, actually just working in the haunted house, like they're scaring them, or if they're actually a, a band of redneck demonic djinn that are destroying everyone. So that's like a fun, you know, uh, it kind of inspired story. Yeah, that's um, that was my first actual novel that I actually, you know, finished and published. And it was a, a fun story. I've got a, a book series called The Books of Jericho. It's about a, um, an international assassin named Ethan Jericho, who's kind of like, um, what if John Wick worked The X-Files? So he's this assassin that gets hired on to these cases that always wind up being supernatural in nature. And then I just put out a series called the Wolfstone saga. That's urban fantasy. Um, it's about a, a girl who's got this fan who's got this, um family medallion that, you know, kind of links back to, you know, thousands of years of history. And it's uh that's a fun story. It's very, very inspired by my love of comics. And I just put out a book, That we just, the one that I just finished my Kickstarter for last week is called Red Sunrise. It's uh, Samurais versus Vampires. It's the most down and dirty, nitty gritty story I've got. It's essentially, you know, Dracula versus, you know, Shogun. You know, it's, uh, oh, I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, yeah, like Yojimbo versus Dracula. That's pretty much what it is. It's a vampire story set in feudal Japan. So all my stuff has a supernatural bend to it.
0: And uh, that last novella was actually
1: gonna be a comic at one time, right? It was. I I I have dabbled and I didn't dabble. I was planning on being a comic book writer, and then uh, life took me in the direction of novels because, like, I needed something to do in between comic projects, and the novel thing just kind of picked up. Um, I wrote. I did a, a Kickstarter for Red Sunrise as a comic in 2017. We successfully fundraised the first issue, and then while working on the second, I fell out with the uh, artist. We just, um, you know, he wasn't getting stuff done in time, and it just. It just wasn't working out, man. So we decided to go separate ways. I had another artist come in to finish it. The art just didn't match. And I was like, ah, you know, it just isn't happening. I guess I can just retire this project. And then I kind of got the itch. I'm like, you know what? I could probably do this as a novel. And then um, I took my original story because it wasn't supposed to be a very long comic. It was supposed to be a three issue comic. So the notes that I had wound up being, um, I think, a 150 page novella. and that's um, And that was a fun book to write because I was kind of unencumbered by this universe that i created like i just got to i just got to do a a quick like i say down and dirty little you know uh it's almost like an exploitation film you know what i'm saying like it very much has that like uh that 70s you know i don't want to say a schlock movie but like a grindhouse kind of a feel and it's uh it's fun because i've also got to mix some of my you know love of eastern philosophy and i was a history minor in college so you know, I, I just my brain operates in weird places. It also in my mind sounds very John Carpenter, like I could totally
0: see like that being like the sequel to Big Trouble in Little China kind of thing, you know, with that sort of that uh, melting of genres,
1: you know. So Well, thank you, sir. I love well, that's a hell of a compliment. Um yeah, you know, this I do like the genre bend a lot because it's never just like horror. Like I said, um uh, Harvest Moon is basically, you know, a thriller. It's like a, myst- like a like a like a like a like er, a like a cop thriller that becomes a horror story. Like the books of Jericho are these like Lee Child, you know, uh Jack Reacher books that all spin into supernatural so i really like that because like that Dustal till dawn is um is a big influence of mine because of the genre bending i love that i love when you can mix two things that are super familiar and get something kind of different like wolfstone is very much like that it's it's like a little bit of western it's a little bit of superhero it's a little bit of horror you know it's it's like this pop culture art that is my brain that just kind of gets you know spewed onto a page
0: So what are some of the things that you have working on now? Like, are you sticking with writing books or do you have any any other things you're sort of thinking about?
1: I'm, I'm doing I'm working on a novel right now that's very different than anything I've ever done. But it's also very familiar to people that have followed me. I'm actually and I've, I haven't told anybody, this, so I'll make I'll talk about it here for the first time. I'm writing a wrestling book. I'm writing a book about pro wrestling, but it's got to be me, so it's it's fiction. And it's um, I'm doing a challenge to myself because there's nothing supernatural about it. This is just a a gritty little ah uh, no, it's not little. It's actually quite sprawling. A gritty um thriller, like a uh, I would say it'd be like. The wrestler meets Midnight Express. You know, I'm writing a story about a, a um, an American professional wrestler who goes to Japan and gets sucked into the yakuza. And uh, and then half the story is his real life dealing with this gang war, and the other half is told from the perspective of the character he plays. So you've got these dueling narratives where, like the the character the the uh, our character our lead character starts out as this. Uh, in over his head kid who's just trying to keep his head above water and then he turns slowly into this horrible human being where in the wrestling story he starts out as this vile dastardly heel who then you know becomes the biggest baby face in the promotion and the two stories have this like alternating arcs and it's uh it's um it's a challenge it's been one of the trickiest books i've ever had to write and um i'm hoping to have it kick-started sometime within the next year and that's that's the plan this is a uh, it's a different book. It was a it was a challenge, but I I'm I'm very I'm doing the second pass on it right now, and I'm very very happy with it. I'm hoping it's in my editor Justin Nippers' hands pretty soon. So that's the project we've been working on for a little while. I was uh, I pitched this story to DC Comics back in twenty seventeen. They worked with me for a year on developing this pitch. Like the the editor there, Jamie um, Jamie Rich. Uh, I, I reached out to him with i wrote a, I wrote a, i had my first comic book series book called deluge it was a story about renegade cops during hurricane katrina that uh, i heard when i was making the movie down there so i made that he really liked that book and he reached out to me and said hey let's do something together so we spent a year developing this project and then the publisher said pass i don't like wrestling oh that's <laughs> horrible you uh, know, it, what was, a it punch. It- it was. It was absolute gut punch. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? I'm not meant to do this. I'm meant to do it this. So I, I took the story and revitalized it. And I'm, the truth is, I'm a much better novelist than I was a comic book writer. And the book that I have now, because of what I've done with Fight Game, because of the, the, the stories that I've written, because of my friendship with Justin, I've learned a lot more about Japan. And, you know, he lived there and I'm hoping he's going to be able to help me, you know, uh, give it an authentic voice. You know so we're we're a ways away from getting that book finished but again it's it's gonna be fun to do something outside of my comfort zone and uh it's been a it's been a unique challenge it's taking me longer to write this book than any book I've ever written but I think it's really good man I'm really happy with it and hopefully hopefully when it's ready to come out we can we can do some damage.
0: Well you got me excited about that one Thanks, obviously man. because you know I I feel like whenever there is a professional wrestling book or a movie it's usually by people who really don't know what they're talking about and it's just you watching me just like this is, this is it's already wrestling's already fake you're just making it even more fake you know what i mean and i i i know that you know
1: the stuff <laughs> you know what i mean I, so I, I think that will make it really unique i'm hoping so and i like i think i know enough people where i can get the book into their hands in the developmental process where they can help me you know extra layers of authenticity because that's something I think is very important is especially when you're writing fiction is to come off as authentic as possible because like, especially in my work typically deals with these like big universal, you know, things. But like I said, if it's grounded with characters that you can relate to and understand and have like, you know, real life thoughts and real life emotions, it makes the story better, right? Like it's hard to get, it, it's hard to watch a movie or read a book about a god right it's hard to relate to them but it's real easy to to read like a, a crazy story that involves a dude in over his head or you know somebody trying to you know get across the street like i'm a big believer in robert McKee's philosophies on story like you know you've got you know start start basic you've got a character you've got a hero he have, wants a thing something is standing in his way and that is every great story can be boiled down to that so i mean like I write from, you know, 3 X structure. I write from that simple process. Like when I took classes with Andy Schmidt and Combs' experience, he's, he's a firm believer. I said, he to stick to McKee. People think, people like, oh, McKee, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's, you know, old, out of touch, doesn't really talk about. It. I'm a believer, man. That's the, the best, the best, most effective. Not the only stories you can write, but the most effective stories, the ones that land with me anyway, are written to that, you know, story process. So I tend to stick with it because it, quite frankly, it works for me.
0: If somebody wants to learn more about your books and learn more about you and check out all your different audio stuff, where should
1: they go? Well, I took all my books off of Amazon while I was running the Kickstarter. They will go back on Amazon within the next couple of weeks because I was trying to make I try to when I'm running a Kickstarter, I try to funnel all my business into one spot. So that's the goal. But I mean, like um, the best all my books are available on Amazon soon. They will be available on other channels because I'm, I'm, I don't. Kindle Unlimited is very limiting for a writer. You can make a lot of money there, but it also they're super controlling of what you can and can't do. And the stuff I write doesn't do well enough on Kindle Unlimited to justify me putting myself into that hole. But I tried it because you got to see what works. Like I write weird genre stuff that it's just like, It does good, but not great. So, I mean, like, I need to get myself wide. So that's the whole point of this next experiment for me in the fall is I'm going wide with all my stuff. So it'll be available everywhere. So the best place to find me currently is Twitter, man. I'm on Twitter all the time. Like, I I like to post, excuse me. I used to like to post my thoughts about uh, pro wrestling and uh, movies and comics. And I'll get talking about about um, my books and I'll just go rambling on about story forever. I'll ramble about story and character and like, you know, uh, character arcs, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like, so the best place to find me is on Twitter. I do have a Facebook page um, that's private. That's not private, but it's like more of my personal stuff. And I do have a writer page that's uh, more book orientated. But I mean, like, if you're looking for for me, like, just to see kind of what I'm about, Twitter is really the best place. And then, yeah, the stuff's going to be back up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those places pretty soon. So, uh we're going to do it. When the, when the Wolfstone saga gets pushed into the mate, cause we did a really successful Kickstarter in the spring with them. My best ever, you know, we, we, man, we crushed it on that one. When, um when that stuff gets released to the major stores, my stuff will be everywhere later this fall. I'm excited about that.
0: I'm excited for you too, man. I, thanks, buddy. I, I uh, think you're a really good dude and I appreciate well, you thanks. coming on my show. And uh, I think people are going to enjoy the episode and, and uh, I came to get my hands on uh, Red Sundown. So
1: it's it's a it's a fun book, man. I really had a great time writing it, and it's um it's like I keep saying it's down and dirty. It's simple because for me, like I have having like, all these sprawling character arcs and stories. And this is just it's simple. It's a a girl hires a samurai to kill the shogun, and the shogun's a vampire. So what's fun too is that feudal Japan there are no vampires. They don't know what a vampire is, so I don't. I never use the word vampire. They don't know the tropes. So, like, I'm um, as a writer, you're free. You're free. I don't have to do. I don't have to do the vampire tropes. They don't know them. So, they're, the characters are trying to figure out how to get rid of these monsters. So, you get to be a little different. I think we've got an ending that hasn't ever been done in vampire fiction before, and I'm very excited to see how it lands. All right. Well, I'm
0: gonna find out how how it ends, and I hope the people listening we'll also get to read it and see how it ends. So speaking of ending though, now is the time to end the program. But again, thank you so much, JD for doing the show and, and uh, good luck to you.
1: Thanks bro. Thanks for having me on. You had a great podcast. I told you before, I, I like your conversations. I love listening to people talk about movies because movies made such a, a huge impact on me and my life. And I'm not, I'm not sitting here and talking to you right now. If I wasn't the little kid that was too scared to walk in the horror section, you know, at six, seven, eight years old. So, I mean, this stuff shaped my brain and, and made me who I am and gave me opportunity to talk to someone like you. So I, I love this podcast.
0: Thanks, man. I super appreciate that. And uh, I hope you keep listening for sure. Every week. All right, man. Thanks again.